Um, so this morning we looked at First uh, Thessalonians chapter 2 and the middle to end part of the chapter where I suggested to you that the theme is, uh, involves the faith or faithfulness of the Thessalonian assembly. Do you remember many times in chapter 2 and chapter 3, actually six times Paul uses words for faith or believing or believers, same sort of root words there. Uh, in, from chapter 2, verse 13, through the end of chapter 3. Uh, as I was looking uh, this morning, I noticed that that word is only used three times the rest of the book. So this is a section about faith or the faithfulness of the Corinthian assemblies. And this morning, we saw some different marks or identifying characteristics of what it means to be a faithful Christian. And uh, so we, we talked about no matter where you are with God, uh, perhaps you've, you've demonstrated some interest in being a faithful Christian. Well, what does that look like? And uh, this morning, uh, Paul's emphasis in verses 13 through 16 was twofold. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, you will receive gladly the preached word, as the Thessalonians did in the beginning of verse 13. And then uh, also, uh, after that, in verses 13 through 16, last part of verse 13 through 16, you will also gladly face affliction for the cause of Christ. So if you want to know if your faith is real, if you're growing as a believer and you're faithful, um, are you willing and ready to bear affliction with the cause of Christ, even if that comes from your own countrymen, even if it comes from your own friends or family? Are you willing to do that? Well, I want to continue our emphasis on faithfulness tonight, and tonight we start uh, really, I said these four weeks are about faithfulness. The two in the middle are about the great adversary of faithfulness. Um, faithfulness is often met by satanic opposition. And so for two sermons, we will be looking at this uh, together. Now, have you ever attempted some great spiritual task before? Uh, perhaps uh, some week ago you decided that you were going to start reading through your Bible again. Someone in your ABS class or one of your friends challenged you, you need to get in the Word again. So, you, you know, it was a Sunday, you get up on Monday, you're ready to go, get in the Word. And by the time Thursday or so comes along, maybe you don't have the same desire. Or perhaps you decided to uh, live faithfully uh, before God by giving out the gospel. So you determine, okay, this week, every opportunity God gives me, I'm going to try take advantage of these. And, and so as the week goes along, you begin to wane in your commitment to it. Perhaps you've determined to avoid moral pitfalls. You've set your, set your guard up, and, and you're going to do this, but then you, you tend to fall. Or perhaps you decided, because of last week, that you're going to try to disciple someone. Okay, man, you know, I want to be a mother-like, father-like, workman-like, Christ-like in my commitment. And so, you know, you, you even begin to pray about it, and you initiate a conversation with a, a young man or young woman that you want to disciple, but then you start into the process of doing it, and it becomes really difficult. Or what often happens is conflicts start to come, right? This is the way it normally goes. You try to get together with a friend and do some Bible studies, and conflicts and schedule and everything happens and then you lose heart for it and they lose heart for it and it passes away. The, the reality is, is that if you've attempted these things for any length of time before, 
you have probably run into opposition. And we know enough to know that that opposition comes from within, within our own souls, and from without. And tonight I want to begin talking about the, the opposition that comes from without. There's a great adversary to Christian faithfulness of whom we all must be aware. Satan attempts to thwart anyone who tries to serve God. Now, in our civilized Western world, I think we infrequently think of Satan. And I said infrequently, in case you missed that. Do you discern a, 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 a satanic dimension in the evils of this world and in the opposition that you face? And although we don't often consider it, Paul has much to say about it here. Matter of fact, I think his emphasis on Satan is what ties chapters two and three together. Okay, so what I want to do is I want to read chapter two, verse 17, and we're going to go through three, five, and we're going to look for Satan. You ready? 217. But since we were torn away from you brothers for a short time in person, not in heart, we, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy, a crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his, at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we were destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it came to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and, your, and our labor would be in vain. And so we see Satan uh, called the tempter at the end and, and also dressed in the end of chapter 2. In these two sections, 217 through 20 and 31 through 5, we'll, we'll consider two ways that Satan stands as an opponent to Christian faithfulness. Uh, tonight we're just going to look at chapter 2, verses 17 through 20, and then uh, we'll, we'll work through the handout that you have in front of you. At the end, I'm going to do something a little bit different. So we're going to kind of go fairly quickly through 17 through 20, and then I want to whet your appetite for a biblical study on the career of Satan in, in the Bible. And so uh, when we get to the end of verse 20, just don't close your Bible Okay, because we're, we're about halfway done. Okay, so I just want to be clear, give you full, clear expectations here. So the first way that Satan opposes us in this text is Satan often opposes ministers of the gospel or by ministers, I recognize we're all ministers uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that's true. We're all servants of his. Uh, that word I'm, I'm using especially of leaders in the church uh, by application, I think it's, it's all of us, but uh, in this text, it's Paul and his apostolic team. And so, 
Paul or Satan opposes leaders uh, in the church uh, uh, is another way you can look at that, this. So I want to walk through verses 17 through 20 uh, in three ways, three ways, three points. Um, and it's kind of like a narration, kind of like a story, and you can kind of walk through it. The first part is I see a good desire in verses 17 and 18, a good desire. Paul desired to impact others for the gospel. And you can see that here. He really wanted to impact the Thessalonians. And uh, in these two verses, we can see a lot about that desire. We see a reason for his desire to to see them. He had this longing desire to see them. And the reason is forced absence. If you remember when he planted the church in Acts 17, he was only there for three weeks, and then he was forced to leave. Uh, And so in verse 17, he describes it this way, that he was torn away from them. Metaphorically speaking, Paul says that it's like he had been orphaned from the believers in Thessalonica. And so uh, there are different ways you could take this idea of being orphaned, as it appears in verse 17. Some people think that Paul imagines uh, the Thessalonians like orphans, and he's the parent, but I think he's switching the metaphor. I mean, he's talked about mothers in this text, he's talked about fathers, and now he talks about orphans, okay? And so you look down in your Bible at verse 17. I just, or, I'm sorry. Yeah, verse 17. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again. Okay, uh, the words torn away, uh, that's where I'm getting the idea of orphan, could be translated that they were orphaned from you. Okay. I think, especially, Paul imagines himself as an orphan. It's like he's been abandoned. He, he imagines himself in this way. Paul did not voluntarily leave the Thessalonian church, and he felt deep loss when he was forced to leave by the Jewish population of the city. Then in the middle of verse 17, we see a description of this desire to see them. He said, I wanted to see you more eagerly and with great desire. And then the evidence of this desire is that he had purposed on many occasions to come back to them again and again. Paul says, I, I made plans to come to you, and that's evidence of my love for you, my concern for you. So Paul had this good desire. He wanted to see the Thessalonians. That leads to the second thing we see in verse 19 and 20, and that is, I'm just going to call an eternal expectation. Says uh, verse 19, for what is our hope or joy, a crown of boasting before the Lord is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Paul not only had a good desire to minister to the Thessalonians, he had an eternal motive. He describes his motive here in this verses 19 20 by asking two questions and making a statement. These questions and this answer allow Paul to describe his love for them in, in close detail. And within it, we see many descriptive words. First, the word hope. Paul says his hope or expectation was bound up explicitly in the performance of the Thessalonian believers. I think since believers are to be judged for the work that they do at the Bema judgment of Christ, Paul anticipated receiving reward for the work that he had done among the Thessalonian believers. That was his hope. He also describes them as his joy. This is joy. And I think this is the 
sort of joy a parent might have in one of their children, or they would speak of their children as their joy. This word for Paul indicated that he had a very close relationship with the Thessalonian believers. His joy, in a sense, was bound up in the spiritual commitment and faithfulness of those in the Thessalonian church. As a matter of fact, often you'll hear this phrase, something like it, that joy is not impacted by circumstances. You ever heard that before? I, I, I think in many ways I agree with that. Most ways I agree with that. I just put like one caveat on that. And that is Paul will occasionally talk about the great sorrow that he would face if a friend or someone he ministered to would suffer physically or fail spiritually. You think of a place where Paul talked about having sorrow upon sorrow if someone died. You, can you think of that passage? It's Sunday night, so you can say it out loud. Yeah, it's chapter 2. Uh, actually, it's Philippians 2. Philippians 2. And who's the person? Paul says, if this man dies, it would bring me sorrow upon sorrow. You think of who that is? Epaphroditus. Yeah, thanks, Marty. Epaphroditus. In this text, Paul describes the Thessalonians as his joy. His joy is bound up in their spiritual performance. And so I think joy can be impacted by the way someone we invest in spiritually, by, the, by how they perform, by their life and the choices that they make. Joy is in some ways impacted by that. Okay, so you can beat me up later about that. But I think Paul's describing Thessalonians and their life of faithfulness as his joy or part of his joy. He then describes them as his crown of boasting. Crown would be the wreath of victory, you know, given in Olympic or Greek games at this time. Paul says the Thessalonian converts will be his crown of boasting at the coming of the Lord. He then describes them as his glory, which is another word for boasting or renown. In summary, Paul's reward was, was linked with how God used him to impact others. His investment in the souls of others would bear eternal fruit. And so as Paul is talking about his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting, and his future glory, he wraps it in whether, uh, up in whether or not the Thessalonian believers will persevere in the, in the faith. And so from this, I would say, you know, as we consider Paul, it should produce in us no small concern if we cannot point to lives that God has used us to impact with the, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so, like, if you can think of no one who's spiritual performance is important to you because of the investments that you've made, because of the times spent in prayer and Bible study and discipleship of that person, that should create a huge concern for you. Okay, so as Paul's talking about that day when he sees Christ, he says, you are my crown of boasting. You are my joy. You're my hope. And so Paul had 
a good desire. He wanted to see the Thessalonian believers. He had an eternal expectation. They were his glory and joy. And then finally, though, verse 18, middle part of the verse, and I skipped over, actually the end of the verse, that little phrase, but Satan hindered us. So he also had a powerful adversary. Satan stopped Paul from ministering in Thessalonica. And so although Paul had a good desire with eternal expectations, he also had an opponent. Satan is a powerful adversary. The title Satan is a loan word from Hebrew. It's translated from the Hebrew word Satan, which means adversary. And it is often used of the chief angelic adversary of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan. And uh, so what Paul reveals in this text was that Satan was somehow able to uh, thwart him or to encumber him as he performed ministry. And I think one of the best questions we should ask here is how? I mean, what, what did Satan do? Paul just says Satan hindered us. And the answer is we, we don't know for sure. Um, it may be that Satan sent some sort of physical illness to Paul, which impacted him, although there's no indication of that in First or Second Thessalonians that I can find. Now, there are other texts. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul talks about his thorn in the flesh, okay, which I think is some sort of physical problem, maybe vision problem. And then after he talks about the thorn in the flesh, 2 Corinthians 12, 9, how does he describe it right after that? He said, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Okay, so it may be that this was some sort of physical attack that Satan had made on Paul or his body. Uh, And that, I think, happens in his life. However, I think it's better to say that what he's talking about here is that Paul could not return to Thessalonica. He was being hindered by Satan. He was blocked from being able to come back. And uh, I think that this means that Satan was using the Jewish population to, uh, to prevent Paul from going back. Matter of fact, turn in your Bibles for a second. We're going to be do, doing a little bit of turning tonight. Acts 17, and we're just going to do one verse. So keep your finger here. Acts 17 and verse 9. He says, so what we're tracking down here is what or in what way did Satan hinder Paul? And I come to Acts 17 and verse 9. Uh, Actually, let's look at verse verse 8. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Okay, so there's something legally or perhaps illegally going on in Thessalonica. And so they're thinking about what to do with Paul and with this disturbance. Remember, they dragged Jason out, this believer in Jesus Christ, and they'd attacked him. And now they take a legal deposit, I think, of money or illegal deposit of money as a security, okay, from him. It, it, it may be, I, I think, that when Paul says that Satan hindered him, that Satan had produced trouble locally that prevented Paul from coming back to the city. 
In the very next verse, he leaves, and he goes to Berea. In other words, uh, perhaps there were legal barriers or legal prohibitions that prevented Paul from returning there. And so the apostle, I think, is banned from ministering in the city, so he has to send back Timothy, for instance, to minister to them. Okay, so uh, that's the text as I see it. Okay, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Okay, now, what I want to do in the, just the next uh, 7, 10 minutes or so is I want to whet your appetite for something I think that's very important. An important study for believers of Jesus Christ is to study the career or the activity of Satan. Uh, think about it. There are not many books written upon the great adversary of Christian faithfulness, Satan. Uh, there are not many biblical theologies written, not many articles written on Satan that I'm aware of. Yet in the Bible, Satan appears in Genesis 3 and verse 1 and uh, approaching even the garden. And then he passes off the scene into an eternal hell in Revelation 20 and verse 10. And in between those two verses, Genesis 3, Revelation 20, there's a whole host of things written about Satan in the Bible. And so I would suggest that this is, a, this is a noble study for us to perform. We need to be aware of Satan and, and, and his role in creation or salvation history. And we should also be aware of the way he often impacts followers of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when uh, Paul writes to the Corinthian believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, there was this man who had done something wrong. We don't know exactly what it was. But Paul says that the majority of the church in Corinth had punished the man so that he was repentant. He had turned back to Jesus Christ. And so Paul challenged, I, I personally think that the man had a problem with Paul. He was a critic of Paul the apostle. Yet the church the church had confronted him and he repented. So Paul says, what you need to do with this man now that he's repented is you need to forgive him. You need to forgive him. And if you forgive him, Corinthian church, then I forgive him. I would forgive him. And as Paul is working through that, he says to them, you need to forgive them. And the reason he gives for them to forgive this man is, is so that Satan does not get a hold of him. And then Paul makes this very important statement. He says, for we are not ignorant of the devices or the schemes of Satan. As Paul makes that statement to the Corinthian church, we're not ignorant of the way Satan works. I think often in our modern churches today, we are ignorant. We don't really know much about the way Satan works. And so what I want to do with you for a moment is just give you uh, fruit of my own study. And we're going to go very quickly. Don't be afraid by how many bullet points there are here. Okay. This is just for you to study this week. Uh, I have found in, in my New Testament, especially New Testament, I've gone the Old Testament a little bit, but more in the New Testament, 10 schemes or devices of Satan. I want to just give them to you. I'll comment briefly on, on them. I'll give you the text. You can study this out this week. Uh, first, uh, many of you know Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 12, which talks about the spiritual warfare that we engage in as believers. 
Uh, what we learned there, the first bullet point, is that Satan attacks us with supernatural forces in spiritual warfare. This is that text about put on the whole armor of God. Well, if you read verses 10 through 12, it talks about all the different forces that Satan uses to attack believers in supernatural ways in spiritual warfare. Kind of a general statement, but that would be uh, a text that you would need to go to. So that's the first bu bullet point. He attacks us in spiritual warfare. Number two, a second bullet point, he causes humanity to distrust God's word. He causes us to distrust God. And Genesis 3 is an example of this. Remember in the garden, at the very beginning, Satan arrives and his first question is, did God say? Did he really say that? He causes us to distrust God and his word. I think as well in the New Testament, I was going uh, through the temptation of Christ. And if you go through the temptation of Christ, he's, he's trying to get Jesus to question the character and the love of the Father for him. So Satan will often do this to us. He'll, he'll tempt us to distrust God and his goodness. That's number two. Number three, on occasion, Satan can afflict bodily harm on believers to discourage them. Okay, think of that text that we just looked at, 2 Corinthians 12, 7, where Paul says, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me. I think it was a physical issue, perhaps with his eyes. You can also think back to an Old Testament character. You think of an Old Testament character who was given permission by God to afflict him and his family physically. Can you think of this? Who's that character? Job. So Satan at times can afflict bodily harm to believers. We should not be, we should not be ignorant of that. Number four, Satan indwells evil men and women to empower them against Christ and his followers. Satan can indwell unsaved people and empower them as opponents of Christ and the church. And I think of, here I think of uh, the text would be Luke 22, three through six, with Judas Iscariot. And Judas is there and the text says, Satan enters into him. Satan can indwell evil men and women, cause them to rise up in opposition against Christ and the church. Number five, fifth bullet point, Satan encourages professing believers, professing believers at time to seek self-promotion in worship. See, Satan can creep in. Uh, I'll, I'll read again because some of you are taking it. Uh, he encourages professing believers to seek self-promotion in worship. He can come into something even as joyous as worship, our daily worship, and he can twist it so that we seek praise and glory. Can you think of a text? Acts chapter 5. Two people. Remember Acts 4? There's a man who gives a gift to the church, Barnabas. It's a good gift. He sells some properties, and he gives all of the proceeds to the church to help them care for each other. Then in Acts 5, a man and his wife get an idea to sell some property and to say, to say that, uh, that they're giving the full price of that property to the church, and it's Ananias and Sapphira. And in that text, the text says, 
that they're asked this question. I think it's Ananias is asked, why has Satan filled your hearts to lie to the Holy Spirit? Okay, so you can look at that text, look at Acts 5 sometimes this week. Number six, Satan tempts believers to sin. You could write down 1 Corinthians 7, 5. In this text, it's a text about marriage, a man and a woman, and they're not to refrain from each other for a long time. And the reason, it, you know, he says, do not deprive one another unless you have mutual consent and for a season uh, so that Satan doesn't get a hold of your spouse. Satan can tempt us to sin. First Corinthians 7, 5. Number seven, he encourages unforgiving, unloving hearts in the church. Second Corinthians 2, 5 through 11, he pr- produces unforgiveness in our hearts, and that discourages others. Uh, we looked at that text a little bit, 2 Corinthians 2. Number eight, he blinds the spiritual perception of lost people. That's what Satan is doing in this world. 2 Corinthians 4, verses 3 and 4. He blinds the spiritual perception of lost people. He's called the God of this world there who blinds minds. Number nine, we're still in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, verses 14 and 15. He, he uses undercover agents in the church to deceive believers. 2 Corinthians 11, uh, 14 and 15 is that reference. And I'll just read that text to you. It, it just speaks for itself. Verse 14, and no wonder, it says, for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds, Paul says. Okay, so it should not surprise us if Satan has undercover agents in the church that look like ministers of righteousness. You say, well, that would never happen. I mean, this is uh, our our world today. Read the text of Scripture. Paul's concerned for that. And then number 10, uh, Satan also uses suffering to discourage believers. And for this reference, you can write down 1 Peter, much of the book. Satan will use suffering Physical suffering to discourage believers. First Peter, you could write down 5, 7, and 8. Uh, 5, 7 says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. Talking about God and the way he loves us. This is this glorious verse, but right after that it says, uh, but be sober, be watchful, for your adversary the devil uh, prances around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And right after he talks about suffering the text. So Satan can use suffering to discourage us. In the Thessalonian text, Satan had banned Paul from returning to Thessalonica. That's quite interesting to me. Not only do you not see many books written about Satan, you, you actually don't hear many sermons about him either. I find it very ironic that probably the most powerful sermon I ever heard on Satan and satanic warfare was given by a good friend of mine who has since been disqualified uh, and uh, been divorced from his wife in ministry. We don't hear many sermons on him, don't see many books, but tonight we've just entertained briefly that Satan is the great opponent to Christian faithfulness. 
I think it'd be good for us to respond in two ways tonight as we think of application. First, we need to recognize that Satan is real. He is real. He can prevent good intentions. Though he's real and can prevent good intentions. I love the song that we sang, John told us not to forget about. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not at him. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. So he's real, uh, but God is greater. And so uh, two ways to respond. Number one, recognize that Satan is real. And number two, by requesting that God would protect us from Satan. This week, let's pray for each other. Let's pray for the leaders of our church. Let's pray that God would protect them from temptation and that God would bless their efforts in ministry. Let me close this sermon with a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for giving us everything we need in your word. Lord, if we were to read this book from cover to cover and were to pay close attention, we would see Satan on many of the pages of this book. And Lord, as, we're, as we would look to his career and his activity, it, would, it should become obvious, even as we just looked at tonight, that there are many different ways he schemes and plots to destroy us as followers of Christ. Lord, he not only attacks us as believers of Jesus Christ, he is also active to destroy leaders in our church and leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, I pray that this sermon tonight, this text would just awaken us, just would remind us. We think of Paul and his, uh, just his, uh, the, the fact that Satan and his hindrance was on his mind, and I pray that we as well would keep it on ours. And Lord, for any brother or sister here tonight who is presently facing satanic opposition, it's very real consideration, I pray that you would encourage them. I pray that you would strengthen them. And I pray, dear Father, that you would defeat Satan in their life. Allow these brothers and sisters to stand firm in the faith. We pray. In Jesus' name, amen.